Hey everyone, Dave Broadbeck here. The lecture you're about to hear is for psychology, also biology, uh, 3506 neuropharmacology, and it's for the, uh, I guess, winter of 2018. Enjoy. Hockey in my office. Russia and the States both lost. Yes. So, in fact, there's one game. The States lost to Slovenia, which is like like the Greyhound game. <laughs> uh, Russians lost to Slovakia. I'm sorry, Olympic athletes from Russia. Cheater, cheaty, cheater, cheats from Cheater Stan. Uh, right, so today we're going to talk about opiates, and i got to get a new cable. Um, on the left, you see some paraphernalia for taking heroin uh, and some heroin. And on the right, that actually is a morphine molecule for those of you that find pictures of molecules useful. Right. Um, we're talking about anything that's like morphine. They all work the same way. Um, opiates are natural. By natural, I mean... They occur in nature, they aren't made by somebody in a lab. Opioids include everything. Okay, so something like fentanyl. Fentanyl isn't, it's, it's, it's a synthetic opiate. Okay, They're, they used to be called narcotic analgesics, these drugs. Um, narcotic analgesics, narcotic meaning they put you to sleep, analgesic meaning they kill pain. And that's actually a really good classification. The problem is the word narcotic means something in the law and the word, it, it, it has nothing to do with a drug that puts you to sleep. It's a drug that is illegal. So uh, cocaine is considered a narcotic in the law in the States and Canada. And that's not a narcotic. It actually wakes you up. Um, yeah, the, the law in Canada is Narcotic Control Act. So I mean, if you look at something like marijuana, until soon, is still considered, quote, a narcotic. Marijuana is not a narcotic. Right. Uh, so it's a real, it, it's too bad because narcotic's a really good word, but it's, it's you, don't, you won't see it used in scientific literature too much anymore because it has this, this legal meaning, which is a drug that is illegal. So LSD is a, is a narcotic, according to the law in Canada and the States, and it's not. So I'm not going to use that term very often, it's a, but like I said, it's a good term because it means puts you to sleep and kills pain. And that's what these things do. Uh, typically, the clinical use is, is as a pain, uh, as pain killers. Right? And I'm sure there are people in here that have had surgery that have taken, uh, that have had morphine. Uh, if anybody here has ever taken Tylenol-3, it has codeine in it. Or you might have been prescribed uh, codeine cough medicine. Can't get that over the counter, but you can get a prescription for that, right? And uh, I once took, took too much coding cough medicine because I misread the label. Like a very interesting evening. I'll say that. Uh, I said take four teaspoons, and I, I read that as tablespoons. And, uh, so I took like three times the dose, and uh, I, very, I didn't cough anymore. I saw things, man. <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting evening. That's all I'm going to say. Um, it's really 
hard to read. So yeah, there's man-made ones if you want to say that. Uh, but they're all the same thing. The molecules are almost identically shaped because they all bind to the same kind of receptors. When you get... The place you get morphine from is sap from poppies. Okay. It is, in fact, true that if you eat enough poppy seeds, you could test positive for morphine. You'd have to eat a lot. Like poppy seed cake, which is wonderful stuff, or uh, something like that. If you ate a lot of it, like a couple of cakes, you could conceivably test positive. And that fact that happened is a Seinfeld episode where a lady was eating a poppy seed muffin, I think. There's always a Seinfeld episode for everything. So you get the sap from these, from poppy seeds, and then eventually it was figured out that the, 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 the two active ingredients in here are morphine and codeine. Okay. Now heroin is considered a semi-synthetic. Um, a semi-synthetic opiate. So it's not... It's almost the same thing as morphine. In fact, it's really just morphine with two acetyl groups attached. Okay? Now, it's 10 times as liquid soluble as morphine, which means it's going to work faster. Right? Remember that? When something's liquid soluble, it crosses barriers more quickly. But then you think, the thing is, Diacetylmorphine actually can't cross the blood-brain barrier, but there's, a more, there's an enzyme that we have that actually lops off one of the acetyl groups, and now it crosses the blood-brain barrier. So basically it just works faster. Heroin was actually developed by the Bayer Company, the people that brought us everything from uh, barbiturates to aspirin, right? Acetyl salicylic acid. The story goes that Bayer uh, found that when he uh, took... Because uh, everybody knew that Salicylic acid was a painkiller, but it's an acid, so it's corrosive, right? So you don't want to be taking a whole lot of that stuff. And he added an acetyl group to it to stabilize it, and then we end up with what we call aspirin today. So his next move was to do the same thing to morphine, and he added two acetyl uh, groups to the morphine molecule, and he ended up with diacetylmorphine, and he actually named it heroin because it was like a hero. That's a trade name, heroin. That's why it's got a capital H. It's a trade name. Um, and it is a great painkiller. It works very quickly. But it also, of course, has great abuse potential. It is used now sometimes in um, end-of-life care. Uh, in, in, in Canada, the UK, Australia, not in the States. You don't even allowed to say heroin in the States. They'd lock you up for 20 years for that. Um, and you can do research with heroin in Canada, and you can't in the States. Uh, when you do research with heroin, it is every week the RCMP come and look at your stash that's supposed to be, if it is in a safe, and see how much you have, and you have to log how much you've used on your rats or whatever. Uh, but you can do research on heroin. All right. So synthetic ones that you may have heard of are things like methadone, LAAM, which I always forget what that stands for. Four. I wonder if I have that in my little notes here. Which is like method, it's, it's methadone-ish. It's not used much anymore because it's got, uh, no, I don't have it in this part of the notes. Uh, it'll come up later. Uh, the thing about it is it's not, there have been some problems with it. I'll say that. 
Okay, so it's not used in the States much anymore. Um, fentanyl, of course, is the famous one that we hear about nowadays. Most of these things were developed, methadone and LAAM were developed as really slow-acting opiates to replace heroin or morphine that people are taking as a recreational. So they're taking them, uh, they're addicted to it, the drug problem. They take these drugs, they then don't get the withdrawal symptoms, but they don't really get a high. Okay? You're going to overdose on methadone before you end up getting high from methadone. Okay? And typically with methadone, the way the doses work, if you go to a methadone clinic, you're given it and you're to take it in front of the person who's giving it to you. And you take it orally, you drink it. Uh, if you are not going to a methadone clinic, but you're going to a pharmacist to do it, you take it in front of the pharmacist. They don't give you a bottle to take home. It's like, here's your dose. Go ahead. I have to watch you do this. So it's pretty well regulated. Whereas uh, fentanyl, for example, was developed as a painkiller. Oxycodone was developed as a painkiller. And they are really amazing painkillers. That's the thing about these drugs. And that's one of the issues with the sort of opiate crisis that's going on is that these are really legit drugs that are useful. Right? It's the same sort of thing, in a way, it's like, you think about, say, gas huffing. Gasoline's really useful. It's also exceedingly dangerous when you're huffing it out of a garbage bag. You're not going to ban gasoline. Right? You're not going to ban contact cement. I'm put that in the garbage bag. We just melt it. But or something like that, right? So you're not going to ban these substances. But how are you going to stop people from abusing them? Is, is that the question? These tend to be longer-lasting things. Uh, fentanyl, uh, you don't need much of a dose. You tend to take it, you're supposed to take it, in a patch, Right? The problem is people get the patches, take the drug off the patches, and then it's very small amounts that you need to do to actually have an effect. Or they take, so they can ingest it orally, or you can smoke it. It's pretty cool. Some of these things are injected, uh, but typically not. These things have been, been developed as, well, the first two are treatments for uh, addiction, and the next three there were are painkillers, and you're not going to typically inject a painkiller. All right, so uh, the Sumerians, then we're going to go by way back, this is, this is we're talking four and a half thousand years ago, called poppies the joy plant. So they had already figured out that poppies are awesome because they could lead to morphine. <laughs> they didn't know that. It's sort of classical medicine, and I put that in quotes because classical medicine, so I'm talking ancient Greek, Greece, ancient Rome, most of it wasn't really medicine, right? Most of it was superstition and guesses. And sometimes it worked, right? If you go back and read Galen, some of you guys will eventually go to medical school. I'm sure some of you in here want to do that, and you'll have to read in a history of medicine class a text by Galen, who was like the physician of the gladiators, and which is kind of a cool job. Uh, and he, he wrote one of the first medical textbooks, Right? And one of the things that he talked about, for example, was he tells you how to, you know, uh, how to take a pulse, how to do all kinds of things. He talks about using poppy sap as a painkiller. He also talks about things, and that works. He talks about using 
honey as a on a wound as, as an antibacterial agent. He didn't say antibacterial agent, of course. And that, that's true. It works. Uh, he also talks about you know the imbalance of humors in your body. That's all obviously wrong. <laughs> so, but he did get some stuff right. So it is used. It was used in classical medicine. Um, so. Yada, yada, yada. Now we're into 1644. The emperor of China bans tobacco. So tobacco's come from the new world. It's gone to the old world. And people are smoking, and the emperor of China thinks it's not very nice. It's not good. So the people instead switch over to opium. See what happens when you ban cigarettes? So... Prohibition never works for drugs. <laughs> this, is, this is sort of the the thing here is prohibition doesn't work. So people switch over to opium, which becomes a real problem um, on, in Chinese society. So eventually, the Chinese say we don't want opium anymore. Um, and something interesting that happens uh, in the early 1800s, uh, the British are using opium for all kinds of things, including battlefield medicine during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, not very well. It's they really don't quite know what they're doing. But people in Britain were, were, were using opium. And of course, Britain, you've got to understand, the British Empire was literally all about between a third and a half of the world was run by the UK. So at this point, they can get opium poppies from Afghanistan and, and, and what they call British India, so which they didn't call Pakistan. So they get these opium poppies, they, they get out the opium, sort of the sap, and they're selling it in Britain, and then the British government's like, we can't, people are just wasted all the time. We've got to ban this stuff. But now the British have all this opium, and they want China to sell, to sell opium. And China's like, no, we banned opium. Opium's bad for people. So you know what Britain did? They declared war on China and said, you will sell opium. And they beat them because Britain was was the world's superpower. So there was these wars called the Opium Wars. We go, Britain! Um, and we end up with these what are called treaty ports, uh, Shanghai, and also even giving up part of their country, so a pretty small part, Hong Kong. Um, you know, the Hong Kong Bank, HSBC? Yeah, that's because of the Opium Wars. I mean, I will say that the people that work downtown at HS, they have nothing to do with the opium wars. Don't blame them. I'm saying that the bank that was founded by uh, back in the late 1800s was because of that. And I mentioned here that the Brits still do. Heroin, uh, heroin uh, has been an issue in the UK for a while. It's more common among a wider swath of people. So when you saw that documentary the other day about uh, the opium crisis here in town, um, that wasn't a. I don't. Unless you're a, a, a goofball, you're not going to take that the whole town's on opiates, right? And then it's a wide swath of people. It's a much wider swath of people. A, a group like this, if, 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 if you were to take a a survey and ask a, a small percent, a percentage of, of a class like this, 10, 15 percent, will have tried heroin. It's more common. And the pattern of use in the UK, well, there are people that have real heroin problems. Most, many people just mature out of it. They just grow up. Okay. Okay. So in 1875, for example, the UK consumption was 10 pounds per 1,000 people. Okay, that's pretty high. Uh, like I said, morphine eventually catches on. And then there's a temperance movement. 
And then they said only physicians uh, and pharmacists could sell it. You couldn't just buy it from anybody. U.S. consumption was actually higher. It was up uh, to 13 pounds per 1,000 people. And this was because morphine had been isolated and was used in battlefield medicine in the Civil War. And again, it's just been isolated. And the doctors don't quite know what they're doing, and people do get uh, hooked on the stuff. So people talk about how the 60s were bad for drugs, so were the 1860s. Music wasn't as good, though. I don't think. I never heard a lot of stuff from the 1860s. Maybe there's all kinds of things. Okay, so that's a little bit of history of the stuff. It's, 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 you can kind of make light of it, as I've been doing, about things like the opium wars and that, but I mean... This stuff's been a problem, as you can see, forever, because it's got a utility, yet it also has incredible abuse potential. Um, so when you take it, of course, if you do an IP injection or an IV injection, it's going to go straight to the brain. Oral administration is slow, and this is where you get, like, codeine pills. This is where you're talking about something like... Um, well, Tylenol 3 is the example that most people use because it's pretty easy to get Tylenol 3s. I believe you just have to ask the pharmacist in Canada, and you can just get these codeine back, you know, like a bad back pain or something. You want slow administration. You don't want a big hit, do you? You don't want to get really, really high when you take these drugs, when you're using them as the primary effect is supposed to be killing pain. My brother had a really severe back problem a couple years ago. And he was taking opiates for about two months before he was waiting to get his surgery done. And uh, he didn't enjoy it. He said he'll never take something like that again. Of course, he probably won't have to because his back's fixed. So crosses blood, blood, brain, and placental barrier. Um, some of the metabolites are also psychoactive, and we've seen this with other things as well. Uh, this is one of the issues with uh, LAAM, is that the metabolites are uh, active and have really long half-lives. So heroin is the fast, pretty much, well, I should say fastest, because fentanyl is faster. Of, heroin's the fastest of the ones I've talked about, I guess, as I said, except for fentanyl. Um, it gets broken, uh, an enzyme locks off one of the acetyl groups and you get what you might want to call monoacetylmorphine or just acetylmorphine. Uh, and that, it's got into the system 10 times faster because it's 10 times lipid solu uh, more lipid soluble, but it can't cross the blood-brain barrier, but an enzyme comes along, locks off one of the, uh, one of the acetyl groups, and now it goes to your brain. So it's actually one of the interesting things here about um, even before the receptors were found, and this was I think in 82? No. 
81? It was late 70s, early 80s when the receptors for, morph, for, for opiates were discovered. People were pretty, cl- pretty sure we had a we had receptors for, for opiates and we had endogenous opiates. Uh, some of the indications were that the shape of the molecule was related to its effect and of course that shows that it's binding to a receptor site. So people figured, well, there must be endorphins too. So endorphins and enkephalins were discovered. Uh, I mentioned their uh, beta lipotropin in the pituitary gland. This was found that it was in the pituitary, and the thing is that beta lipotropin, uh, a protease um, enzyme, will cleave it into beta endorphin. One of the when you break it, you end up with beta endorphin. So it's like, okay, we're making our own. If we're making our own, we must have receptors for it. Okay. And this was really working was the first psychoactive drug where the receptors were discovered, and then that led people to say there must be receptors for all these drugs that we take. So then you end up discovering things like. Uh, cannabinoid receptors, and you end up discovering things like what we've talked about uh, on a GABA complex, you have benzodiazepine and barbiturate receptors, things like that. Like I said, if we have receptors for something, it means we make our own. something, Or we make something exceedingly similar. Questions? So how does does it work? We get endorphins that are found in vesicles. This this is the final thing is like, is this a neurotransmitter? Yeah. There's actually vesicles of endorphins in neuro, in, in certain um, vesicles filled with neuro, with, with uh, endorphins in at the in the axon terminals of uh, some neurons. Pretty good indication we have a neurotransmitter in our hand, right? These drugs modulate norepinephrine and acetylcholine to dopamine. Okay, so there are different receptors. There's four types, or maybe three types. There's three or four types. Three are clearly endorphin receptors, and then a fourth type, or morphine receptors, we can call them, or opiate receptors. The fourth one isn't just an opiate receptor. So the mu receptor, which is just average, is, oops, that's joke there, very little. Uh, Found throughout the limbic system in the hippocampus and the amygdala. The thalamus, the locus coriolis. This is going to tell you something, if you guys remember this from brain behavior. We're talking about stuff here that's going to be affecting sensory systems. Right? Because everything except smell goes through thalamus, every sensory system. And hippocampus also will affect memory. So this is responsible for what we want to call interesting effects. And just want to point something out. They have what's called a weak attraction for the molecule, the receptors do, which means it has a strong effect. And that sounds uh, contradictory. It just means that you don't need much to make the receptor work. That's, you might read 
if you're doing your reading, if you're, if you're looking uh, at something pretty physiological from the paper, you might see weak attraction. Uh, that actually means that it works, that the, the, the drug works really well at that receptor. I'm going to point that out. Next, we have delta receptors. So here we're talking about the limbic system. They overlap with the mu ones. Also, cortex hypothalamus. Areas like that. Oh, look at that. Looks nice-ish. The accumbens. Oh, look. They didn't place accumbens. Big surprise. Oh, now it's horrible. That's the worst it's ever been. Um, the medulla, sleep and wakefulness. That's your delta receptor. I wish it could stay like that. Nobody move or breathe or anything, and it should be fine. The capital receptor, oh look, it's also in the nucleus coming. And the ventral tegmental area, oh, two parts of the reward system. And hypothalamus and the thalamus. And then there's the sigma receptor, and it's not just for opioids. The sigma receptor has something to do with psychotic breakdowns. We know that much. Uh, opiates bind to it, but other molecules bind to it too. So it's not just an opiate receptor. So it's operating your reward system directly. Like every other drug we've talked about that, that is halfway fun, it's operating your reward system. And you might think, well, yeah, but we make our own endorphins. What would the functional use of that be? We know it kills pain. So opiates kill pain. So endorphins kill pain. Why should it also make you feel good? Any thoughts? Functionally. And what that accomplishes. Why would that be selected for? Put it in terms of Probably something to do with a rush when you're hunting something. Yeah, maybe. That's a thought. I mean, it's, it's vigorous exercise. So it may be something to do with... The release during vigorous exercise is likely to hurt yourself. That's the, the, the notion. Um, and maybe getting a little bit of a rush feels good and makes you want to go out and hunt, for example. Sure, possibly. Could be that it's to make you feel good even though you're in a lot of pain, so you don't feel as much pain. So it also could be sort of a, a pain-killing aspect to that. To that. It's possible. So you hear people talk about how good they feel after they exercise. That's because of the endorphins. You're basically just giving yourself a small shot of, of, of morphine. Very small. You want to feel really good when you exercise. Exercise and then have a couple of drinks and smoke a cigarette. You'll feel great. Kind of defeats the purpose, of course, of the exercise. The paraaqueductal gray is full of opiate receptors, all of these kinds. And basically, when, when, when in pain, those are stimulated. This is paraaqueductal gray is where the pain messages are processed. This is shutting down pain messages. Oh, I wish I had my brain thing with me. Uh, God, I okay. I can draw a picture. It won't be very good. I can draw a picture. I was going to do a thing with my hand being a brain, but that's not going to work. So let's draw a not very good picture. So that is either an army helmet or a brain. It's one or the other. I'm not going to. 
And then we got, we're going to get inside, so we're going to, it's subcortical, and it's right about there. Okay? In the limbic. Yes, yes, just above the limbic system, yes. Between the limbic, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, sorry, that's not a very good patient. <laughs> So the amygdala, uh, and also you have respiratory and, and cough centers, okay? You have a, this is why it can be used, they're great as a cough suppressor, because they'll stop you from cough. They'll also stop you from breathing. Oh, that's not good. That's a downside. Breathing's important. And of course, the reward system. As I mentioned, there has to be a good needle, a good reason to put a needle here. It feels really good. And I can tell you that having seen people take heroin, uh, because I had, had some interesting friends when I was in school, or smoke opium, because again, I had some interesting friends when I went to school. My friend Petri from Sweden. Hey, hey, want to smoke some opium? No, man, I really don't. I'm going to be standing over here quietly drinking some beer. They really seem to like it. I had somebody describe taking heroin as like your whole body was having an orgasm in your eye. That sounds fun, right? It sounds pretty good. And when you watch that documentary, when you saw people use, as soon as they did, you saw that like the euphoria, they felt great, not for a very long time, but they felt really, really good for a while. You can see why it becomes something that's like, oh, it's very, we can see it's very rewarding. And you see how immediate that was? Right? When the, when the guy took the, um, I think smoking, it could have been fentanyl, it was probably just like heroin, and he had a foil, and he was lighting it, and then he was sucking it with a tube, and he was like, <gasps> and he was just like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. It was short-lived, but you saw immediately how that's reinforcing, and you see that the, well, that's going to reinforce the behavior of smoking heroin, right? So you'll get nauseous, your pupils will constrict, it uh, disrupts digestive coordination, which is a nice way of saying you'll get constipated. And then, just think of what the withdrawal symptoms. It will be <coughs> Lovely. You have drop in sex hormones. Um, Testosterone, estrogen. A decrease in REM, uh, but you get vivid daydreams. So you get sort of hallucination-like things going on, but they're more like daydreams, right? Like, you know how you, we all daydream now and then, so you're just sitting there in your office imagining that you're flying a colonial viper in Battlestar Galactica? Maybe that's just me. And it's like a daydream, it's like, it's like a dream. Except that when you're doing this, you may actually experience some of the hallucination part that you get when you're in REM sleep. Think about it. REM sleep is just a whole bunch of hallucinations. Psychologists are such buzzkills. My PhD advisor wrote a, a paper called uh, "Animal Intelligence and Buzzkill." <laughs> it's great. Something like that. There's a word I didn't think she even knew. So I, I, think it's pretty good. I said it. The most recent thing I did just because I thought Sarah said "buzzkill." Beautiful. 
there's the rush, and that's the euphoria, right? That's the fun part. That's the body having an organ. Okay. It can lead to psychotic-like symptoms. So, yeah, psychiatric, so psychotic-like symptoms, but also other psychiatric things. So you, things might, a person might look depressed. A person might look like they're manic. A person might, might look... If you don't know what a drug user looks like, you would think that we have somebody having some kind of psychiatric breakdown. All kinds of possible things here. Uh, you get an increase in spontaneous motor activity with small doses uh, in rats, not people. Uh, it's probably a decrease with large doses. The increase is probably its disinhibition, a sort of a taming effect. Rats stop being so afraid. Same thing that happens, remember, with uh, barbiturates and benzodiazepines. I don't know why those parentheses are there. Uh, spontaneous social behavior happens in rats. This is strange. What's that? Well, rat social behavior is things, so it's anything where you're interacting with another rat that isn't sexual. So grooming is a, is a class. Or sniffing each other. Okay. Again, this is probably just disinhibition. Low dose, not does. You get an increase in FI responding, fixed interval, and a decrease in FR responding. And it does slow the animal's internal clock. High dose, not does, they both go down. Well, of course, high doses of morphine, the animal's not going to do anything. It's depressive to the point where it's a narcotic, right? So it's going to stop behaving in general. I swear, again, I fixed these typos. And then I obviously did. Or I loaded an old version because of an idiot. I was so excited about all the Olympic hockey that I learned the most version of the now. Let's go with that. I have Olympic fever. And that caused it. Um, animals will work for this stuff. It's, it's reinforcing. This should be surprising. And the interesting thing is, even though these are all the same, Basically, and they all work in the same receptor. Morphine can be discriminated from other opiates in rats. So they can tell if they're having morphine or codeine. This may just be due to the fact that maybe a dose effect of some sort. That really, the, you know, morphine works more quickly, and you need a bigger dose of codeine to get the similar effect of morphine. And also, excuse me, morphine is more potent. So it can deliver larger amounts of analgesia, but also a, a bigger high than any amount of codeine. So it may just be that. So even though codeine and morphine operate on the same set of receptors, um, morphine's more efficient. So it could just be that. But you get generalization of other opiates. So if an animal learns that it pushes this bar and it gets... So a rat pushes his bar and gets a shot of morphine in its head. It, it has no problem learning that if I push this bar and you change over to coding or you change over to something else, then it can, that's not a problem. It'll learn that pretty quickly. It's going to have trouble learning that, that pushing that bar now leads to cocaine. Because it's a different feeling. 
doesn't generalize. Okay? Just learning stuff. <clears throat> Tolerance develops pretty quickly. This is not surprising um, when you get, when you're habitually taking a drug, one of the things that happens is that you may develop, you may have, it changes the amount of receptors that your genes express. Your brain is sort of attempting to be in a homeostatic state, to always be in the same state. So withdrawal is bad, but it's not as bad, actually, as withdrawal from barbiturates or withdrawal from alcohol. I'm not saying it's fun, but the worst part of the withdrawal is over 36 to 72 hours. Right? So let's say here 6 to 30 I'm being a little bit more broad. I think now I, I probably I've seen 72 people say reported, but the worst part of it's over in like a little over a day. So you're restless. This was something my brother reported when he was going off the opiates he was taking for his back. He said he just couldn't sit still. He would. So he had his back operation. He was fine. He could suddenly walk again. He was, he was walking with a cane. He was like 49. It's weird to see. Um, though it allowed me to make fun of him. He was also good. Um, he made fun of me for being like blind in that for years. So it was good payback. It's true. It's all in fun. We love. But he, he reported that after he had his operation, he was like just walking around the house all the time. Didn't know why. He figured eventually this must be the going off the drugs that's doing this. Hot flashes. I know Dan didn't report the hot flashes. And when you say hot flashes, it sounds like, ooh, you just get a little warm. People describe it as like somebody's poking you with something that's burning. Like it's not like it's just like, oh, I feel warm. I'm just going to swoon now. It's not like that. Right? It's not like, say, uh, or like a woman going through menopause. Right? And going, God, it's hot in here all the time. And it's actually not that hot, but your mom's going through menopause. Right? No, I'm talking about, it's like, it's like someone's branding you. Goosebumps. Why do you think the term cold turkey comes from? Right? So, in fact, goosebumps. Jerky breathing. <laughs> like that. Your breathing was, was was suppressed, so you're going to breathe like more quickly and erratically. Uh, you puke, and the et al there refers to diarrhea. Because <laughs> remember, constipated, and the opposite is. <laughs> Watch the movie Train Spotting, and there's a wonderful scene of um, what withdrawal looks like. Just watch the movie anyway; it's great. There's one scene I don't like watching. The rest of it's great. And then there was the, the sequel just this year. Like 30 years, 30 years later. I really want to watch that. Uh, kicking the habits. You get your leg moving. This is where the term kicking a habit comes from. Is you get restless, basically like restless leg syndrome. So it doesn't sound fun, and especially the puking of the diarrhea. But that part of it's over pretty quickly. Right? Worst of it in a couple of days. Within three days, so some people, as little as, say, one day, 24 hours, say, 72 hours, three days, 
you're pretty much fine. Now, when I say fine, I mean that this stuff's over. The worst of this is over in a day and a half. It's probably completely over in like three days. And people who report, who, who've also been addicted to, like had a problem with alcohol or barbiturates, report those being worse. So that's why I can say that it's not as bad as sleeping pills or martinis. Though when you have a problem with alcohol, usually it's not martinis, you're now down to drinking the scope and shoe polish and stuff. Which is So, patterns of administration. Um, one of the things that people talk about is chipping, which usually somebody who has become clean, they go back and they, they, they do small doses, and it's called chipping because it's like you're having some chips. That's where the term comes from. And some people can do that, most people can't. Most people can't do kids can't. But it does happen where people can do it like on the weekend. Uh, the pattern of maturing out that is especially common in the UK that I mentioned, people tend to, when they get responsible, and realize that they can't be strung out on heroin and keep going to university. So they stop taking heroin. When it's available, people titrate it, and I think you saw that in the, in the documentary. <coughs> Those the two people at the beginning, the, the woman and the guy, and they were um, smoking, right? And they weren't doing it all the time, but they, it was like they were keeping a constant buzz going, right? You can inject it or snort it or smoke it. And I think we saw, we didn't see any injection in that show, did we? No. We saw snorting and we saw smoking. Monkeys will mainline morphine. I just said that because I like it's a great alliteration and I like using it. Monkeys mainlining morphine. It's the very dark Dr. Zeus book. Maybe not Dr. Zeus, more like uh, Big Brown Bear. Big Brown, Big Brown Bear, Big Brown Bear, Blue Ball. Big Brown Bear, Blue Ball, something bicycle. My kids aren't young enough that I remember all the stories anymore. When you have kids, or if you do, you'll know this already, but when you do have kids, eventually you memorize all the stories they have. You can't help it. Can you read one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish again? I guess. I started doing that with different different characters. So I would be like Bill Clinton and William Shatner doing Green Eggs and Ham. I will not try them, Sam I am. Try them, try them like you may, try them like you may I say. And then my daughter would go, stop that! God, but that's the only way this is remotely interesting for me. <laughs> Can we do a new book? No, I want green eggs and freaking ham. I will not eat green eggs and ham. And then I throw things in like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Pointing with the thumb and the whole thing. My daughter's like, what? That's not even there. It's not on the page. It's like, I'm looking, you can read? Why am I doing this then? Read the damn book yourself. Father of the year. Um, so, like I said, if it's this fun, this can't be good for you. And you can go into a coma. We talked to, this was mentioned again, of course, on... 
in that documentary where, which I'll link to, there'll, there'll be a, a copy of it on uh, the podcast website, I'll put it there. But one of the guys actually talked about, you know, collapse, ODing, collapsing, going into a coma, waking up and then doing some work. Whoa, that's commitment. Like that's, that's pretty rough. So you get overdose. I oftentimes, things like heroin are cut with other opiates. Or sometimes you just cut with, with cheap stuff, like anything that looks like a powder. Okay. You can get a loss of tolerance because of what's called the shooting gallery effect that I've talked about this before, where you get tolerance, but tolerance is learned Right? So what happens is one of the cues to, the, to have tolerance is to be in the same place where you would take the drug. Yes? So the problem is now you have this loss of tolerance because you're in a different place and you can overdose pretty easily. Uh, people often mix it with other respiratory depressants, and when I say that, I'm talking about alcohol. And the problem is here we're going to have alcohol, which is going to slow you down, and say heroin is going to slow you down. Bad, bad combination. Long-term use leads to constant, horrible constipation. Does it lead to cancer? Um, there's data suggesting liver cancer. Uh, there's data suggesting pancreatic cancer. But it's just suggested it is hard to do research on people who have taken an illegal and, and, and socially unacceptable drug. That's the thing. You can find people that, are, that, that drink a lot and do research on them. It's hard, but you can do it. You can find people who, do, who smoke marijuana. It's pretty socially acceptable and do research on them. It's hard to find people who say, yeah, I am a heroin addict. I'll be in your study. You know, They don't want to talk about it necessarily, which is understandable. The biggest problem, and again, I think we saw this in the documentary I keep referring to, is the lifestyle you have to lead. Because you devote your life to taking this stuff. It's all you do. And you can't get it from nice people. As I mentioned the other day when we talked about cocaine and meth and things like that, it's not like the guy you get your weed from. Justin Trudeau. It's, he seems like a pretty nice guy. He's making weed legal. My favorite guy. Uh, but we're talking here about, you're talking Hell's Angels or Tony Soprano. These are bad people. These are scary people. If you're injecting, you may very well share needles. And the most recent stat I saw was 21% of IV drug users in the United States are HIV positive. That's unreal, right? The biggest way that HIV spreads now is not sexual contact, it's sharing needles. And this is the notion behind harm reduction, right? It's like, give people clean needles. But they'll take heroin. They're going to do that anyway. Let's hope they don't end up with hepatitis C or AIDS, okay? It's the notion of harm reduction. I mean, it's like, look, they're going to do this anyway. So let's just make sure they have clean needles. drop in sex hormones, you're going to have less... It's going to be harder to conceive of a kid. 
uh, babies that aren't born to people who take heroin have, are, are of lower birth weight. This may have something to just to do with the fact that people don't eat right. The lifestyle. Right? Um, babies that are born with to mothers that have been taking something like heroin tend to have more diseases throughout their lives. And also that they're born going through withdrawal. Yeah, it'll be over soon, but you know, welcome to Earth. First of all, now you have to do things for yourself, like you have to actually eat and poop and all that stuff. This doesn't go through a tube. You're no longer floating in 98.6 Fahrenheit weightlessness. It's cold everywhere. Also, you know, you're going through withdrawal. Good times. So how do we treat this? And this is the thing that we've been, that the world's been worrying about right now. The most common way people stop taking opiates is quote willpower. In other words, they just do it in cold turkey. That's probably not good. Uh, there are Alcoholics Anonymous-like groups. Uh, one of them is called Synanon, and it works exactly the same way, 12-step program, whole thing. One thing that's been tried is antagonist therapy. So you take naloxone. Naloxone is an opiate, but it doesn't open the ion channel. So in fact, it blocks opiate receptors without opening the ion channel so no one gets hot. So if you give people naloxone every day, no matter how much heroin they take, it has no effect on them. Well, I bet that's not exactly but you see the point of this. The problem is you have to keep giving people the antagonist. Now, naloxone is also used... Um, when you have a suspected overdose, the first thing that happens is somebody's given naloxone to stop the drug from doing any more damage. Things like methadone aren't, quote, cures. They're ways for people to get through NLAM. Are, 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 they're not cures. They're not stopping people from being addicts. They're ways of stopping people from having withdrawal symptoms. So they still have to show up and take the methadone. They still have to show up and take the methadone. I think I have the name here of Levacetylmethadol. That helped, right? So that's what LAAM is. If you were wondering. Um, the British system's interesting is what you do is you register as a heroin addict with the NHS, the National Health System, so you, you the service, I'm sorry, you register as a, as a heroin addict, and you go to a hospital, and you get your heroin for the day. You can, huh? Well, you're going to get a clean needle. You're going to get real heroin. You're not going to get something that's cut with something else. You do it in the hospital. And it seems to work halfway decently. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons people think it works halfway decently is because you've now made something that was cool and rebellious into making people feel like they're sick. <laughs> so it's, like, it's not cool to go to the hospital. Right? And you're also making it it's safe for people. They don't have to go and get it from Tony Soprano or the Hells Angels. Right? Now, in Portugal, what they've done is basically decriminalized all drugs. All of them. And you think we have an opiate crisis, crisis in North America? Take a look at what Portugal was like a few years ago. And Portugal had the forethought, in my mind, 
to say, you know what? Just make it all legal. And they don't have an opiate crisis anymore. So Portugal is often brought up as, a, as an example of what one could do. Right. Uh, that's also was tried in, that's, uh, in Switzerland with a little less success. So there could be some cultural thing between Portugal and Switzerland. Questions about the stuff? We'll talk about the show. No, we're good. Right. Do you want me to keep recording? Would it bother anybody if I do? Okay, I'll keep recording. So what did you think of the... Did, did, did you watch the thing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, thoughts? I'll tell you mine, but I want to hear some of yours. Anyone? Please. Uh, my parents watched it too, and I'm getting the sense from a lot of people their age that they just hate the way that it portrayed the suit oh, and sure. all that kind of stuff. Yes. But I don't think they're looking at it it's the fact that it's a documentary on addiction. Yes. It's, 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 not, it's not a documentary, it's a super. Yeah, what are they going to show the waterfront? Like, yeah, yeah. Look at all the people at the Greyhounds game. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them are on yeah. fentanyl. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was well done. I, I had, I, there were times when I had the same reaction. Like, the thing is, though, when you realize it's from the perspective of the people that had the drug problems, right? So someone says, everybody here does this. It's like, no, they don't. I know they don't. I'm sitting in a room, I think, full of people that don't. I think. I'm sure. I think maybe some of you are. I don't know, but probably not. Uh, it's funny, because my mom was texting with me while she was watching it. She said the same thing. She said, everybody there. I've been there. Everybody's not strung out in their hair. I said, no, I know, but think about that. That's, what those, that's their perspective. Right? And like I said the other day, what are they going to show? Also, puppies. Like it's, it's, It was a documentary about people having... And it is a serious problem here. What did the guy, the EMS guy say? They're doing like 50 calls a week where he's giving the locks on. And he said, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, some guy smoked too much weed and he couldn't find his car keys was the, was the, was the problem, right? So things are different. But yeah, I think I, people, I've seen that reaction. But it was about a certain segment of society that segment of people have opiate problems. Other thoughts? Anybody else? Sean, you have a thought? When they brought up like the five overdoses in a day, that was pretty stank. Yeah. 50 a week, right? Is what they eventually said to the mayor. So it's somewhere around five a day. Because, well, it's five a day because nobody overdoses on weekends. So, yeah, it's lots. It's mind boggling, isn't it? Because, I mean, I knew that was here. I know it's here. Um, my wife's uh, art studio space is in a part of town where that happens. And she's talked about seeing people. Uh, and it's like, so I know that exists, but I didn't know that bad. But I knew it was bad. I mean, probably if you sat down and thought about it, you'd go, yeah, five of these probably about right. That's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, please. And then you also uh, hear when they go on that you they see the same people like tens of times. Yes. Over it, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot of um, repeat visits. Recidivism. Anybody else have any thoughts about it? Yeah, please. I think Keep the points that brought up about um, 
of hospital and how people yeah. are treated when they come in is yeah. really poignant because I've known people who have gone in not just for the drug problems but mental health problems. Sure. There's a lot of stigma against both yes. from the nurses there and the doctors. Okay. There. Okay. And again, that is something that I mean, the EMS guy was saying that which I, I, I thought he was kind of the star of the show. He seemed like a really cool, reasonable guy. And he was saying, you know, there are people in this town who just want them all to die. And it's like, really? And then you hear about how when they get to the hospital, people aren't treated very well, right? Um, there was actually just an article this morning in Sue Today where the hospital says 17 people, it's not one person, it's 17 people working in this It wasn't entirely clear if they were 17 full-time jobs and if they were all working just on addictions. Probably not. Probably mental health problems in general. That's what I found striking, too. They said there was only that one addictions counselor at the hospital. Yes. That's that seems... And I know, too, in like yeah. the in the psych ward, yeah. there's not really a good treatment center for all the drug problems. Yes. So, like, it mixes yes. people with addiction. That I do know, yeah. Yeah, and it's not great. Yeah, and, it's, and that's, that's rough. I mean, and, and these folks need help, right? I also yeah. think that people don't give the suit enough credit for what there is to do. This kind of sounds like I'm victim blaming. No, no, I, I know, I, I know what you're saying. Like, there's a lot of stuff to do. People just don't go out and look. Like, there's no, there's like free shows every week at like Court Street Cafe. There's an yeah. outdoor sure. uh, like workout center. There's free skating everywhere. There's plenty to do. People yeah. just don't go out and look. And you know, part of it is though, and I saw that when when people and when, in fact when the one oh the social worker <coughs> work person said. People were painting the word board on the side of buildings. It's like, no, one guy was doing it. I think I know that did that, too. It was one guy. Um, so it wasn't people. It was person. Though uh, no, it made a great point in the documentary, and that's fine. And that's true. I mean, there are other things to do, but the problem is that once you get into something that feels so damn good, it's hard to think, well, I could either do some heroin Or go skating, <laughs> you know. And heroin feels really, really good. And also, I'm going through withdrawal right now. Skating's not going to fix that. Going to see a band at Lop Lops is not going to fix that. Uh, it well, might a really good band, right? Um, so this is. I, I felt the same way when I was watching. It's like, that, that stop with that thing. I mean, like even before, like you get into the drugs. Yes. It's just, there's plenty to do. Yes, of course there is. But I mean, and of course, and part of the angle, and this was with the young guy. Uh, near the end, everybody hates their hometown. You want to leave. Everybody wants. Well, there are some weird people who are like this is the greatest place in the world. I ever want to leave, but there's not very many of those people. <laughs> like I remember living in London, Ontario, a city of I don't know, four hundred thousand people. Thinking to myself, I hate this place. I got to get out of here. I hate it. And I remember going to U of T and talking to, as a grad student, talking to local students. Like I hate Toronto. It's stupid. I want to move to Vancouver. I want to move to Montreal. So, yeah, those are great places. Lots of things going here. You know, there's three million people living here. Yeah, three million assholes. You know, so it's like <laughs> everybody wants to leave their hometown. So, I mean, I can see how that guy got that. And then, of course, he falls in with, oh, he takes some heroin. Or whatever he was doing. They didn't know clearly he was doing. But, yeah, I mean, I had that, that feeling, too. But, like I said, I think any other points before? Because there is something I want to talk about. But I'm glad you have these ideas. I found it kind of shocking that the mayor had no idea I was surprised, but I think he had to, it was a genuine reaction he had. Like, he wasn't like, he went, what? Right? And then he's like, what's the number again? And the person off camera said 50, and he went, 
I have no reason to doubt that, but like he was really shocked, like he was amazed, right? That just says more something I think about the advisors the mayor has than anything, right? And they seem to have done stuff since, because that was filmed in November, they were saying. So they're, they've acted somewhat on it, and I, I think there's some goodwill there, so I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping. I mean, we didn't see the whole interview either, right? So. But yeah, I mean, it was surprising as hell. But I thought he was genuine. That was the only thing that I thought was good about that inner part with him. He was like, he wasn't sitting there, he wasn't doing, I don't know, how do you define the word is? Like, he wasn't saying that. He was actually, like, shocked and, like, appalled, the whole thing. And obviously, nobody ever brought it up to him. But the thing is, as someone who lives here, I'm a, quote, professional in this city, I don't think about it. It doesn't occur to me. It occurs to me when I'm downtown near where my wife's studio space is, and I'm going to go see her, and I go, oh, right, this is where there are interesting people. It's hard to recognize that when you're not involved. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Now, the mayor and me have different jobs, right? I mean, he's supposed to run the city, so. Bit different. Other thoughts? Please. I think it would be good if they mentioned more of the services that are available. They were kind of yeah. violating the access, but they should have mentioned the ones that are available. Well, I mean, I think one of the heroes of the whole piece was uh, the woman who's the addictions counselor person. She was like a hero. Like, I was like, I want to hang out with her. I want to get her to come be a guest speaker in this class. Because, I mean, she was great. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, part of the problem is, though, that even if we do, and we do have stuff here, the problem to me is that there isn't enough of it. And I think that was the point they were making. They were showing, like, she was stretched to the limit. And they showed the, um, oh, community something center there on, on Gore Street, right? Yeah, and they were showing people there doing stuff, and it's like, wonderful, but if, if there's that many people, if there's 10 overdoses, you know, ish a day, But then they did show that one part where they were going to that house and it was like, I think I used to live there. Or next door to there. Like, 20 <clears throat> That was weird. For me. I feel almost like I was in it. Other thoughts? This is good. This is good. Okay? So, the thing that struck me about it is... Well, I, I was up partially two months. I was kind of like, because I'm probably the same age as those parents, uh, that part of it, I was watching it, and was like, it's not that bad here. But then I'd say to myself, but it is for these people, and there's a bunch of these folks, so I should realize that it is that bad. So that was one thing. Uh, but it immediately showed me the validity, explanatory power of the reinforcement-based model of drug taking, right? Because... You saw immediately how good, especially the people at the beginning, those two people just using all the way through that whole segment. And they weren't proud of it. They were just doing it. They would talk, in fact, the woman especially was talking about how, you know, I don't like being like this. And then she'd do, do something, and you could see that she felt really good. Right? Because she's doing it because it feels good. And everybody talking about how there's nothing else to do here, as untrue as that may be. Nothing, they're not getting reinforcement from anywhere else. They're only they're getting it from opiates, and it shows you the power of this stuff, right? 
And these, these drugs are so... I mean, you hear about people talking about just make them all illegal, horrible, all opiates should be illegal. It's like, yeah, they have real uses. You can't do that. Right? So, I mean, my feeling of uh, was watching it was like, I could see how people... They had nothing else in their life to feel good. And that would make you feel good. So why not do that? I also really felt for... I mean, I felt for all the people that were the, had the drug problems. I also felt for that guy's parents. Like, they looked... It was, that was really... Because they didn't know what to do. They had no idea. And I wouldn't know what to do either. And I'm a psychologist. And I'd be like, I don't know. I think that's the problem with this kind of there's a lot of older people that just don't, they don't really understand it. They, some of them don't try to. I, I think that's true, and I think that's part of the thing is that we've had a real flight of younger people, because everybody wants to leave their home down because it sucks. But it's not just young people, people your age. There aren't a lot of people here between 25 and 40. You know what I mean? Like, that are close enough in age to people that are 18 and 20. You know, and and, and and we're more recently involved in various subcultures. <laughs> Most of those people left, right? So it's a little bit different. Um, I think that's part of it. So you get this big age gap. There's a there's a chunk of there's a, a demographic that's missing. Though it's not, I can tell you, it's not as bad as that was 20 years ago. Because I remember being here when I got my job here first, when I was 30 years old and walking downtown, going, "I'm the youngest person in this city." And I'm 30. This is weird, you know. So uh, that is—it's better than it was. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that you get a lot of older people who hadn't had uh, any contact with people that have been in those situations. Other thoughts about it? I thought it was very well done. I thought also watching it, it was, at times it's really uncomfortable to watch, right? Because it's like, I live there. This is where I raise my children. Kind of once. Why am I making them live there? But then you realize it isn't everybody. But it's a real problem. Solutions? I don't know. I think harm reduction is the, is the key, and they, they, they talked a little bit about that. Uh, convincing people that harm reduction is a good idea is politically difficult. You can show them the science. You can show them that all day long. You go places where they give out free needles, places where that, that have um, that treat people that have drug problems um, well, and not like criminals, have less crime and they have fewer people with drug problems. And you can show that to people all you want. People that make a moral argument, like we talked about at the beginning of the year. And in fact, one of the guys, and I forget which one of the drug user said that, he said, like, everybody just views us as trash. He said something like that. You know, and trying to convince people, because that, that's a moral argument, and you can't argue morality with science. It's hard to do. Right? I like to think when I see something and somebody shows me data, I'll change my mind. But a lot of people won't. It's like, this is just wrong. Yep. Did you see that separate segment that's still from, like, Vice Internet? It's about the students, about just one girl to keep in as long. No. She um, overdosed and was, like, left in an alley. Oh, and then they sent her, I don't know where to put her, they sent her away. And while she was there for a month, 
because she died, including her father. Jesus. An overdose, like from overdose. Yeah. So that was like a separate one. I'm surprised. But it's still for Vice Canada. And yeah. Still don't sue. So she said in a month, 11 people she knew personally died from while she was getting treatment. See, and this is the thing, too. Um, the behavior gets modeled to you by your friends and family. Right? So it's not just that there's, quote, nothing to do and I think the reinforcement anymore. It's like, well, this is what people do. Yeah. And if it's included your dad, I mean, that's unreal. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. I mean, it's, it's something that makes you... It makes you want to throw up your hands, but we know that there are things that work. That's the thing that gets me. Right? We know giving people more opportunity, which can be done in the city this time. To, to enjoy themselves, to feel good, to feel good about themselves. We know that works. Right? And this is start, I mean, this, this this problem is happening all over the sort of industrial part of North America. All of right? it's uh, amazing. There's an, an episode of Anthony uh, Bourdain's show. Uh, Parts Unknown, which is a great show because it's also mostly about a, guy, a cool guy going around eating. But he's in Western Massachusetts. You can find that one on CNN.com and, and uh, talking about the, the heroin problem in a sleepy town in Western Massachusetts. It does not look like a place where people would take care of It's very good. Anything else? All right, thanks everybody. Uh, that was depressing. Uh, have, listen, have a good break, eh? Um, work on your papers. That's where you work on your papers. It's called Reading Week, but also make it a little bit of Writing Week. To be All right, thanks.
or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Brodbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something but if you didn't i unless you're one of my students i really don't care um the music by the way for each uh song for each uh uh episode <laughs> lecture uh is uh available they're all podcast uh, like pod safe music so if you want to uh, find out about the bands there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback uh if those links don't work just contact me and i'll find uh i'll find out um Often I put links, uh, actually, in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>